Well, we, uh, Lucy and I, uh, really have looked forward to capping off our year with being with you. We're making a journey to see certain ones, and uh, this was the right time for us to come. I had the extraordinary privilege yesterday of prophesying over children. Um, I'm always mindful of the fact that even though they're the youngest among us, they clearly represent the future. And for us to make a way for them to begin to take their places, to have the understanding of who God put them in the earth to be and to become, is one of the critical ministries that we do in regards to the continuity of grace in the earth. In one of our conversations yesterday, we talked about how Jesus was introduced uh, in the Gospels. In four Gospels, he was introduced twice through extensive genealogies. In the, in the Gospel of Matthew, he's introduced through 42 generations. And in the Gospel of Luke, he's introduced through 62 generations. Now, when I, was a, when I was a child, I thought that these genealogical records were intentionally put in the scriptures to frustrate children by, by having these imponderable, unpronounceable names. Uh, I've gotten older and I see the value of introducing Christ that way. None of us just happen to be here. None of us just happen to be here. It has been the deliberate intention of God, consistent with creating man and designating man as the heir of God. It has been consistent with him to connect us to the most ancient of promises especially as they relate to the most troubling aspect of human existence, which is to determine who you are and, correspondingly, why you are here. If you don't have those two things in place, you will, you will go through life muddling through and never being able to actually settle the question as to what is unique about your being. There's no possibility of settling that issue on the basis of the soul's reflections. And in fact, after the soul has been realigned to the spirit, then God begins the serious download of revealing to you the uniqueness of your presence in the earth. But having said that, the uniqueness of your presence in the earth is to be understood against an overarching background. In other words, we're not just a collection of individuals with 
even divinely appointed and special purposes. All of that is within an overarching framework because God always intended a corporate reality by which His presence would be carried in the earth. And as important as our individual functions are in that overarch, our individual functions are both determined by the overarch and more to the point, they're determined by the specific things God is doing within that overarch within our periods in time. So God appointed when we would live as much as He appointed who we are. He further appointed where we would live and the role we would play in the greater purposes of God. So now I know you've been studying and being taught as uh, as members of Doug's family uh, and the related families here in the Lubbock area, I know you've been taught quite a bit about the priesthood of Melchizedek. So I want to expand on that, approaching it from the viewpoint of my initial statements. Because a priesthood, a priesthood is the administrative function of a covenantal order. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. I think I'll take both. <laughs> You're in for a long morning. <laughs> a priesthood is an administrative function of a covenantal order. Now, covenants are established for the purpose of creating estates. You establish a covenant to create an estate. There are rights and duties associated with covenants. Anytime you make a covenant, you have the party of the first part, you have the party of the second part, and they're exchanging values between them and they're exchanging values on the basis of immutable, unchangeable agreements. Once you establish a covenant, it is so immutable, it's so unchangeable, that then you are able to rely upon the terms and conditions of the covenant forever, or at least until the covenant, until the terms of the covenant have naturally expired. But in the case of eternal covenants, they were enacted so that everyone who would be affected by these covenants, whether they knew or were present at the, at the enacting of the covenants or not, if they were to come into the covenant as a beneficial heir, the establishment of the covenant was designed by such, uh, by such immutable conditions 
that you could rely on them fundamentally for your existence. The priesthood is the way God intended for covenants enacted to be both empowered and administrated. Now here we are talking, uh, this is juridical language, this is the language of jurisprudence and we are not normally inclined to think juridically about the Bible because frankly so many uh, of our religious instructions have been formulated on the basis of our needs and the way we have assembled the scriptures topically to try to extract promises to supply our needs. And as far as we're concerned, for the most part, a religious approach to God is very much about finding things He has said that we could hold up in His face having also asserted that we did the things that He wanted us to do and therefore He owes us the fulfillment of these promises. And even if we haven't decided that that's the way we should approach it, we would say that because He promised it and we believe the promises, then we're inclined to be, we should be able to rely upon these promises. But that is such a that's simply an orphan's way of viewing a covenant, of viewing promises because it's viewed apart from any sort of reliable structure. Which is why promises that people have extracted and put in Bibles for morning devotionals typically don't work because we determine what the, problem, what the promises are and we determine it without the benefit of context. Now the most ancient covenant, as you well know, that was established, in fact it was on the basis of the establishment of this covenant that God actually created the universe and more to the point, He created it to host the existence of man. Man was the intended beneficial heir of a covenant that God established before He made man. This is the pre-creation covenant. Now the reason this is the covenant that is administrated by the order of Melchizedek is because of the nature of the covenant itself. God intended by this covenant, and I might parenthetically add something that you are already very familiar with so I won't spend the time to develop it, that this covenant was enacted between God and God. When God decided He was going to create, He also assumed the role of Father to the thing He was about to create. The moment you create anything, the obvious and lasting result is that to that thing you create, you are its progenitor. It's a fancy term for Father. So God fully anticipated in the act of creating man 
that he'd become man's father. Now, there's a result to being a father to something, and that is that the thing is able to call you son. But God knowing that son would stray away from God and would need to be recultured to the ways of God, also elected to take on the role of son as the measure and standard for this reconciliation. This was all agreed upon before the foundations of the world. Indeed, the lamb was slain when? From the foundations of the earth. God intentionally determined that he would become the pattern for son before he created man. And this was the covenant. He was about to create man, he would adopt the role of father because you cannot not be father to the thing you've created. I mean, it's, it's, I used the term yesterday, it's ipso facto, which is, it's a matter of fact. It's, it's, it, it can't fall out in any other way. I mean, when, when fathers and mothers decide to create children, they have also taken on the role additional to wife and additional to husband, you've, you've automatically taken on the role of father and mother. How did that happen? Well, kids showed up. <laughs> it changed you. And the, and the odd thing is, the same person, the same individual has taken on a completely different identity. Uh, you know, as it regards Deacon's father, Deacon is a son, and I don't know if his father is still alive, but if, if and when his father were alive, when Deacon was in the presence of his father, there was a mindset that he had that governed his entire personality. He, was, he found himself deferring to a superior authority, at least in his own heart. And for all intents and purposes, he was clothed entirely with that personality, and that would be him. But when they had children, to the children, he now is a father. And he takes on an entirely different personality from that of being a son to his father. But vis-a-vis -vis Karen, he takes on a whole different personality as husband to a wife. One person capable of three distinct and completely separate realities. When God decided, when this great awesome, too big to be observed spirit, known as God, decided to create, he automatically took on the person of Father. And that is within the being, to be manifested because he's a creator, he can, he can invest any form he wishes with that which is within him. Now. 
the spirit of deacon is the same spirit whether he is operating as a son to his father, a father to his children or a husband to his wife. So there's not, there's not a distinctiveness in the spirit of the man in all three different manifestations, which is why there's not a distinctiveness in the spirit known as father, it's the same love that characterizes the father. But it's manifested differently because the circumstance is different in the son who also loves. How does the son love? To the same capacity as the father. What's the the example of that? For God the father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That one would describe as the quintessence of love. But concerning the Son, he says, greater love has no man than this. This is the absolute apogee of love, that I would lay down my life as the Son for my brethren like my father denied himself the love of his Son by offering his Son. It's the same spirit same quantum. That is why the Son is God, the Father is God, and the Spirit of empowerment that we know as the Spirit of God, who is holy in all of His ways, is also God. And there's no inconsistency in the character and nature of that one Spirit. That's why God is simultaneously one, with three different distinct and perfectly synchronized, not not a shadow of turning, not a hint of variation, because ultimately God is a spirit. Same spirit in the three, but distinctly different manifestations. That said, and this is important to understand because this is the foundation of the covenantal order that we are going to administrate. Which means, I mean, just knowing that much, we can infer that whoever is classified as son, within the son, the many within the one, the propitiation as we talked about down in Dallas, is going to have to be conformed to the standard of the son. And for the purposes of displaying the glory of God in the earth, God is going to have to empower the corporate son with all of the attributes of God himself. You see, so when we understand, when we understand the characteristics of God on display in the Holy Spirit, the spirit of lordship, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, counsel, power, and the fear of the Lord. When we understand that, we are also understanding the economy that the covenant allows to be transferred from where it reposes in the person of God to those whom the covenant was intended to benefit. 
So our economy and what is administrated by the order of priests, known as a royal priesthood, is exactly the economy of the characteristics of the Spirit of God. And everything necessary for life and godliness is found in the Spirit of God. To empower the Son, the corporate Son, to be like the Father for the purpose of representation. Now, from our viewpoint, our principal interests in these matters tend to run mostly to our survival. So we don't especially value the characteristics of the Holy Spirit because we don't see how they guarantee our survival. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. Because this is the priesthood. This is what the priesthood is designed to administrate. The priesthood is aligned to the Holy Spirit for the purpose of both distributing gifts of the Spirit. Well, I, I gave it up. <laughs> <laughs> distributing gifts of the Spirit and also to manage the growth of the Son so that the Son becomes increasingly competent to both receive the measure of his estate and to impart grace so that others under your rule may similarly come to the status of, of, of uh, 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 the huias or mature son so they can function as sons of God in the earth, thereby presenting the fullness of the work of the Son in the earth. But let's go back for a moment and pick up one thread, which is, why would God create man anyway? What is the imperative for the creation of man? And what motivated God to create man anyhow? We know he established creation to host man. We know he sent the Son as the pattern for reconciliation to the Father. We know he sent the Holy Spirit to reveal the nature of the Son and by that to disclose to us the message of the Son which is to show the Father and to empower and bring to us the, the economy that enables us to be like the Son whose purpose was to disclose the Father. And all of this is bound up, as you might suspect, in a covenant. The purpose of this covenant, as we said in the threshold remarks, was to guarantee the certainty of these things, the immutability of these things. So much so that even the created universe would cease to exist but the certainty of this covenant would be entirely unabridged whether or not the present order of the universe existed. <coughs> to put it in the words of Jesus himself, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. Why? 
because they predated the creation of the heavens and the earth, meaning that the thing God was about to do in creation was also designed to transcend creation. Sonship is a forever thing. Forever and ever, amen, in the words of Randy Travis. <laughs> Just as a note for those of you who are listening by recording, I'm in Lubbock, Texas. This is Mac Davis country, but Randy Travis is accepted here as well. <laughs> That's what Elizabeth says when she's tired of her parents. She says, I'm coming to live with y'all forever. <laughs> 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 why would God, uh, why was God even motivated to create man anyway? What's the point? Well, the nature of love, if God is love, the nature of love is that it always requires the other. Otherwise, love is an unproven hypothesis because it lacks confirmation in the other. You ever, have you ever tried to love just being by yourself? What would that look like? How would that work out? There has to be another. Now, in the unique nature of the love of God, The final and ultimate expression of this love is bound up in the relationship known as Father. And there's a feature of this love that makes it the ultimate standard. Because when you create a thing, you intend to be known by the thing you've, been, you've created, which is to entrust the representation of your being to another. I think every parent shudders at the possibility of someone saying of their children, you remind me of your father. <laughs> But of course, if they do well, we're always happy to say, that's my boy. <laughs> I think Spike did that on the cartoon. <laughs> Some of you were too young to remember that. That's my boy. God intended to become known. The invisible God intended to become known through the visible man. And that seems like an imponderable. How could the inexpressible be expressed? But not really. It is true that God is too big to be seen. If anything that fills everything in every way denies us a perspective from outside of itself, why? Because there's no outside. There's no outside. If you fill everything in every way, there is no outside to you. 
So we can't conceive God, of God or notion of God in relationship to a spatial identity. It's impossible. There's nothing outside of God. If there were to be something outside of God, what would that be? That's my point. He would be in that as well because he fills everything in every way. So in that sense, there is no vantage point from outside of God from which to see God. An analogy might be, as I've sometimes referred to it, um, the fish in the ocean. Now we who have the opportunity to fly at 35,000 feet and sometimes if you fly over the ocean, you can see the ocean. You can even see the curve of the earth. But the fish have no opportunity to observe its environment from above it. It's always in it. So it has no vantage point. It, can't, it cannot get outside. The fish cannot get outside of the ocean to see it. It's too big to be seen. We cannot get outside of God to see God. He's too big to be seen. When a thing fills everything in every way and cannot be seen, the appropriate term to describe such a being is the word spirit. It's not that he doesn't exist, it's not that he exists in a different dimension, it's that he transcends all dimensions. So the only way to actually know God, to express God, is to be able to do that in regards to those aspects of his being that can be expressed, such as faith, hope, love, attributes of the being, the way the being is. Love requires the establishment of the other to represent you, but not just any other. That's why God did not allow angels to be his representatives because they're not of the same kind and nature as God himself. No more than you would allow a real estate agent to act for the distribution of your goods. You may, have, you may employ an agent to do specific things, but in your representation, in the representation of your being, you want someone who is of your own being because then they have the capacity to understand who you are. That's why God created man, by endowing man with a spirit that came out of the person of God, as the very essence of our being. So we are capable of representing him. Now a thing that comes out of the being of God Just anything that comes out of your being is what you call son. (laughs) 
Anything that comes out of your being is what you call son. God created us out of his own being. So we are in spirit of the same kind and nature as God. And he did that intentionally because only one who is like the other is capable of representing the other. A stranger, a different creation is unable to do so, but just by virtue of the limits of the difference of that creation. An angel was not created by an endowment of spirit out of God. Man was. That is why God cannot say to an angel, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. But to the son he could say, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Angels, however, have a, have a purpose. Just like your real estate agent is not likely to be uh, the representative of your estate, so an angel is not likely to be the representative of your person. Only a son can represent a father because the son is of the same nature and kind as his father. What does that imply at the heart of it? It implies that your representative has to have your own mind, the same mind that is in you. And only, you don't raise, in my analogy to a real estate agent, you don't raise a real estate agent, but you do raise a son. A real estate agent has the same, has a, a, a standard competence that relates to the work they're doing. Angels have a standard competence according to the work they were created to do. But a son was not created primarily to do work although there's a work for the son to do. The son was created of the same kind and nature as the father, so he could carry the presence of his father in these characteristics that were found initially in the spirit of the father. All of this is the layup to try to define what the order of Melchizedek is designed to administrate. So, the establishment of this covenantal order prior to the creation of man governs absolutely what God created when he created man. Man is not created as some entity in creation for the amusement of God. Man is created in creation to be the object of God's love. The one to whom he would be focused in his love. Now, inasmuch as he was going to also, that God was also going to take on the function of son, understanding the need to reconcile son to father, because he knows the end from the beginning, he knows that he knew man would sin before he made man. So part of the provision was that of reconciliation. And, to, and reconciliation, by the way, is an accounting term. It implies a prior existing standard. 
So you're going to reconcile to a prior existing standard. Well, one, the, the, the odd thing about departing from the standard is you can't return to it voluntarily or, or you can't return to it as ab initio, as from the beginning. Once you've departed, you're tainted and you don't have the right to come back. So you can't be reconciled yourself. But you can be reconciled if God also comes as Son, but comes in a form that allows you to be assembled to the Son and therefore be reconciled to the Father by the Son. This is the concept of propitiation that I attempted to, to open in Dallas. It's, it's what the ancient Hebrews understood the Ark of the Covenant was. When they spoke of the box, when for them the notion of propitiation was the idea of a box that contained a covenant. And whatever was put in the box was presented as being indistinguishable from the box. Christ did not become just a sacrifice, an appeasement to God for our transgressions. So God said, okay, I accept the sacrifice and I'll let you walk. It wasn't that. That's the concept that the ancient gods of Greece and Rome and Babylonia, that was their concept. The gods were fickle. If you messed up, you could offer sacrifice. They would say, okay, um, I accept the sacrifice and we'll reset. No, once you have transgressed, there is no possibility of resetting because God is not a God who's subject to appeasement. God is not fickle. His righteousness is offended. Man is distanced from God. So how is that transaction of reconciliation occur? How is it meant to occur? God established a prior covenant by which He accepted that Christ would come as the Son to pay the price that man would pay. But once you depart from God, you can't pay a price that's sufficient because your sacrifice is tainted. That's why God did not want a weak and sick and lame offering. The sacrifice had to be perfect. It was still a life. I mean, if you, if you sacrificed a lamb in the Old Testament that had a broken leg, it was still a lamb that was going to be sacrificed. But that was not what it was meant to picture not just the offering of a life, but to offer the life that had not been broken. That's why it had to be a perfect sacrifice. And the Son, God could come as the Son to be sacrificed. Now, the way He came was as a spirit invested in a man. In the same way God could issue spirits out of His being, He now issues the spirit of sonship out of His own being. The wonderful thing about a thing that issued out of God is that can be reassembled to God. So when we are saved, we are baptized by one spirit into one body we are made indistinguishable parts 
of the perfect body. We are purified through death and resurrection. But such was not available to us before there was a receptacle to receive us back into the one having been purified by his death. That's why we symbolically join him in death to arise to walk in what is called the newness of life. Then we may be assembled as parts of this box, as part of the propitiated and may be presented again to God as indistinguishable from the perfect standard of the Son. And then we have access to all that is necessary for life and godliness. Now because God established this whole thing through a covenant, prior to the, obviously prior to the creation of man, because it was supposed to govern every aspect of man on the earth once God put him on the earth, anticipating that he would be lost. Then God established a covenant with himself so that everything that is in the estate of the pattern son would naturally attenuate to every part of that son, every member of that, of that body. Now there are aspects of his estate that are too big to be carried by any individual. But they're certainly meant for the corporate man. And that's why there's an administration to distribute, to to administrate the functioning of that which is individual and that which is corporate. Now all of this administration is in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the active agents, the the priests themselves, function under the Holy Spirit. Now here's the marvelous thing about the priesthood of Melchizedek. Unlike the, the priesthood of Aaron, in which there was a high priest and an entire order of priests who took uh, varying degrees of offices for service. The pattern for the priesthood of Melchizedek is the perfect son, who is also in his designation the high priest of that order. So we are not priests of different orders. There's one standard order of the order of Melchizedek because there are not many sons in that respect who are the patterns. There's only one son. There's only one pattern for the order of Melchizedek. And that's the pattern of the high priest himself. 
The high priest is the picture of the Son. Every priest serving in the order of Melchizedek is designed to be conformed to that exact standard. Whereas in the order of Levi, priests serve various functions because that was an order of doing. This is an order of being. Now, when you come into the priesthood of Melchizedek, you come through death and resurrection. This is the ceremony, if you would like, this is the ceremony of purification. In the order of Levi, there were ceremonies of purification, washing ceremonies, cleansing ceremonies, and the like. They were all symbolic because there was not a requirement as it regarded the condition of the soul of the priest in the order of Levi. There was only a requirement as it concerned the body of the priest in the order of Levi. So as long as your body was without blemish. All of the requirements of the priesthood of Levi regarded the body. So externally, you had to meet the standards of Levi. But all of the requirements that relate to the, to the priesthood of Melchizedek govern the soul. These requirements do not govern the Spirit because there's an assumption that the Holy Spirit has already testified to the human spirit, spirit to spirit, that we are the sons of God. The status of our sonship then is manifested in the condition of our souls. So there is a working out in the soul of our qualifications to handle greater and greater aspects of the administration of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, for some, I mean, with the soul, God works from the most external aspects, if one could put it that way, meaning from the outer perimeter to the inner being, of the soul to conform to the standard that was Christ. So God begins in the order of preparation of priests in the order of Melchizedek, qualifying the order of priests in the order of Melchizedek. God works from the outside considerations. So the things that are least important things that have the least value to this priesthood are the things that God begins to require of you the soonest. 
The first aspect is that you learn to rule yourselves internally. Then in a growing way, you're given greater and greater external rule and the spheres of your rule expand commensurate with how you rule, how you learn to rule when God is is pressing you in those areas. Just for the sake of illustration, one of the early things that God requires of us is to bring into order um, basic things such as what do our souls depend on the most for its independence from God? When we don't depend on God, because that's the condition of the soul. When we do not depend on God, what do we depend on? Yourself. What, what would you say is perhaps the most glaring example of our attempts to depend on ourselves. What what are our resources? Yes. How would we define, say, provision? I'm pursuing a specific matter. Money. Money. When we don't depend on God, we depend upon our money. In fact, isn't it odd that the thing we ask God for, with some degree of consistency, is the right to exist apart from trusting Him? <laughs> Look, this thing isn't rocket science, okay? But it does require, it does require a paradigm of understanding to deconstruct. Otherwise, we're just kind of going around, making it up as we go along. The sign, you can, you can count on this. I have no interest in your money. There will not be an offering taken here today. <laughs> I'm simply telling you the truth. The sign that, we are, that our souls are unruly is that we can't do the basic thing of tithing. It's an uncontrovertible view. That's why God established it. God knows of our propensity. The orphan's culture is different from the culture of a son because because the orphan has only himself to depend upon. That's why he's an orphan. Why he's an orphan. He accepts that no one actually is a resource to him but himself. So he hoards. And the easiest thing to hoard is money. The most tempting thing to hoard is money. Now, we understand, I mean, none of us here 
all of us here have been part of some form of church structure growing up. And we've been endlessly beaten up by orphans from the pulpit to get our money. And some of us even developed a certain pride in being able to resist the continuous squeezing to get the last dime out of us. Because it was orphans trying to exploit orphans. I don't care if you give money. I don't care at all. Nothing about my life depends upon a dime anybody gives. You know why? I have a father. I have a father. It's that simple. Why am I speaking to you about this? Because as you address the order of Melchizedek, God is reculturing you from the position of orphan to the position of mature son by reformatting your soul away from the culture of the orphan to the culture of a son. Because all of what you're allowed to handle in life that has any value at all of an eternal nature comes increasingly as your soul is brought back under the rule of your spirit. And the first things God assails are those things that represent your independent ability to function apart from God. And there's nothing that deludes you more thoroughly into thinking that you can exist independently of God and still handle the things of God than money. That's why it's called the deceitfulness of riches. Do you think there's any deception to it? It deceives you into thinking that you have all, and I promise you this, if that's all you ever focus upon, that's all you ever focus upon, your own independence from God, You'll kid yourself into thinking that you actually are doing things for God. Every time I see people who once walked with us who don't anymore, every time I meet them, you know the first thing they want to tell me is how well things are going for them financially. because they've reverted to the perspective of being able to assert their financial independence from God as the basis of their blessings. So let's move on from that and talk about what are the real riches of the kingdom anyway? What are the real riches of the kingdom? Why were you created? Were you created simply to survive? If you were, that's the glory of money. In the present economy, the glory of money assures your survival vis-a-vis your fellow men. If that's what you have, that's what you have. But might I suggest 
that as long as you stay there, the weightier matters of the kingdom are not yours to possess. If you can't rule over unrighteous mammon, then you cannot, you're not able to receive that portion of your inheritance that constitutes the weightier matters of the kingdom. Okay? So let's move on. Let's talk, let's talk about what's positive, <laughs> not, not, what is, not what is negative. It's simply a template for the assessment of where people are. That's all it is. Jesus said something in John 17 that goes more to the heart of what is your inheritance and, and more to the point of why are you here? Why are you here? And what is in the estate that was created by his obedience that has now come to you in your measure individually and is coming to us in the greater measure corporately as was intended before the foundations of the earth? What is in that? What are the greater things? In John 17, Jesus described the aggregate of these greater things in the following way. At the beginning of John 17, he said, Father, I am coming to you. Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the foundations of the world. Now, before the foundations of the world, when you go back to Genesis 1, there is a glory that was native to the one who became the Son of God and walked around in human flesh. According to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, he says, in the beginning, which is the same uh, reference to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. Instead, in Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, going back to that same point of origin, the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now how do you find the word in the Genesis record of in the beginning? Because Genesis 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Going back to John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with the Father. Verse 11, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory 
as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, we identify Christ as the pre-existing Word who was with the Father before the creation of the world. So at a minimum, He's returning to the glory of the identity of the Word. At a minimum, that's what He's referring to. But there is more to be understood in the story of Genesis. Because there we do not have a reference to the Word, there we have a reference to the water. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Without elaborately developing the principle, I'll refer you simply to the reference in James. And, and again in, um, in Ephesians, in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, washing her by water through the word. The scriptures then consider the water and the word as one. But that's not the only scripture. Jesus told Nicodemus that a man has to be born of water and of the Spirit. And the reference is to now you are clean by the word I have spoken. What is the function of water? To cleanse. To cleanse. You're born again by a washing of water and the Spirit and the renewing of the Spirit. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, So the scriptures are replete with the integration of the function of the Word as the cleansing agent of God. You are cleansed from a a defiled conscience by the Word of God. So the, the function of washing is done by the Word. So in the beginning we have the Word in the form of the water. And you will notice this fascinating arrangement between the water and the Spirit. For the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The picture before creation of the glory of the one who is known as the Word is that in conjunction with the Spirit they execute creation as that which was in the mind of God executed in the void. So, and that's why God said, because that's what you do with word. You administrate word by the declaration. The whole creation came into being to receive and sustain those who would be purified by the word. He made it. Why would He make it? For what purpose did He establish it? To sustain the Word in creation. We are born again of the Word, we are integrated into the Word, we are presented to the Father in the context of the declared principles within the covenant 
that existed before the creation of the world. It's why it's all so perfectly symmetrical, why it's unshakable, why heaven and earth would pass away, why the entire creation can be dismissed. But that which was before the creation continues to undergird your existence in time. So when he returns to his place before the creation of the world, he exists to guarantee the support by the Word, by the immutable Word of all that He left in creation, having finished the purposes required by the covenant before the fact. But here is the duality, He returns to that glory. He's the water and the Word, both in God, outside of creation, and within creation itself. So there is an absolute connection between the sons of God in creation and the eternal Word that sustained us, even that which brought us out of the mind of God. And he sworn it on oath. You think this might be shaken sometime, somehow? (laughs) Now, here's the duality as I was saying. So, but then he said, John 17, same chapter, first he's going back to the glory he had with the Father before. So he's returning to his status as the water and the Word. But he left us another glory. He said, and this was his word, still in John 17, he said, but the glory you gave me, he had a a native glory, if I could could use a very human term to describe uh, a transcendent order. He said, but the glory you gave me, so there's a, a glory he received by coming as the Word incarnate, made in flesh, veiled in flesh the Godhead He, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, hark the herald angels sing, it's Christmas time, (laughs) I get carried away. (laughs) It was always the intention of God to be incarnate, to become incarnate in you. So he said this, again John 17, but the glory you gave me, I have given to them. What was that glory? And now he gave it to us for a purpose. And I'll mention the purpose, but I won't develop it. The glory you've given to me, I have given to them. He was speaking representatively of his disciples, but would go on to say, and all who will believe in me through their words. So that would include you, all right? What was that glory? It was the glory of being the exact representation of the Father. For when Christ who is, 
this is what Jesus, how Jesus described it earlier on in John. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. Why? Because the Father and I are one. Listen, do you understand that you were left this glory so that whoever, when Christ who is your life is revealed through you, his work of showing the Father is meant to be continued in you. This is by covenant. This is by God swearing to God. This is when God said, I swear to God. Which is okay when he does. <laughs> and this is this is <laughs> this is Hebrews six, because there was no other for God to swear by, God swore an oath to him. That's how he established the order of Melchizedek. Sixth chapter of the book of Hebrews. Because there was no other, this is what it says, John six, I mean uh, Hebrews 6, because there was no other for him to swear by, he swore on oath to himself, God to God, the Father to the Son. The expressions of this great, too big to be conceived of, God, that expression of Father, that expression of Son, entered into covenant to produce this thing. He swore an oath to himself and made Abraham the beneficial heir of what was promised. God did this, it goes on to say, that by two immutable things, the oath and the promise, by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, those who have fled to take hold of this hope offered to them may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who has gone before us, has entered on our behalf and has become the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's what it says. I swear to God, that's what it says. <laughs> I don't know about you, but for the creation to be allowed to carry the representation of its creator is the ultimate glory. When Christ who is your life, your propitiation, your reconciliation to the Father, when Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory, in that glory. That's an exclusive glory. Angels are not allowed to participate in it. Nothing in creation is anything but a dim reflection of that glory. But the glory that of, of the presence of God himself appears upon your face. And when you come, my beloved brethren, 
when you come bearing the glory of God like that, it changes every environment. Because He, He changes everything He fills with His presence. It's like when we compare that to everything we're going through. Everything we're going through is light and momentary compared to this eternal weight of glory. Not in the sweet by and by, but our inheritance under this covenantal order. This is the order of Melchizedek. It's defined as an order of kings and priests because, because, this, there's always a because. Why would it be an order of kings and priests? Because who are you representing? The living God, the highest of all authority there is, beyond creation. Heaven and earth would pass away, but the authority of what He has established cannot pass away. He is God, that's what's meant by God. He is the ultimate king. The business of kings is to rule. The coinage of kings is authority. This is the ultimate authority. You have to be a king to function in this authority. You can't not be. It's ipso facto. It's a matter of fact. If you represent the highest authority that there is, the place where everything is settled finally, that's king. That's the meaning of sovereign. In the law, we have a, there's a term for it. It's called race, which is the thing. Race judicata means the thing has been settled, or literally, the thing has been adjudicated. Means there's no looking behind the curtain. That's the final authority. All creation needs a full stop, a place where the thing comes to rest. My experience with academia is that the struggle is always with the standard. (coughs) What is the right standard? The argument in the law always is what is the applicable law? The argument in research is always what is the place of rest? What is the final authority? So academic papers will list every conceivable authority in support for your thesis because they're hoping to find race judicata. That's a way of trying to determine what truth is. The final resting place of a matter ought to be the truth of a matter. I'm distressed that in academia everything is um, negotiable. There's no resting of things. Relative. Everything is relative. And therefore there's there's a trailing assumption that everything can be overturned and upset. 
But here is your authority. Here is how final your authority is in this order. The one after whom you've been styled, the one to whom you've been assembled, says this, I am the truth. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> Why? I am the truth. He doesn't say there is a truth. He doesn't say there's a way. He doesn't say there's a life. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the, because these are the descriptors of the glory he had to represent the Father. Exact representation is not partial representation. We're not talking about a mixture, part you and part him. So he's going to choreograph your movements to bring you to a point of exact representation. So when he brings you there, you are inheritors of the authority to resolve human conflict because what you are competent to do is you are competent to bring out the eternal standard and because you, the applier of the standard, are not yourself compromised, you and the standard are one. Therefore what you declare is both in spirit and in letter the standard itself. Now what comes to your aid in that process? All of the creative power of God. Every aspect of God is, is embodied in the standard and brought forth in you. And you become in the instances of your deployment within the scope of your authority, you become the final adjudicator of what is true. That's what frustrated the scribes and the Pharisees and the existing order of, of the law of Moses and the priesthood of Levi when the order of Melchizedek came. It was the superior standard. It was the superior standard confronting the type and shadow. God maintained a type and shadow within creation so that the culture would not be unfamiliar with the reality when it came. Shadows are meant to keep one connected to the mindset of the truth, but it's not the truth itself. It's a flavor of the truth. Just like lambs were a type of the lamb. But when the lamb himself came, it wasn't a lamb, it was a man. It was the incarnate God in human form. I suppose that if I were going to pick out the time is gone, but suppose if I could pick out the central asset 
in the estate of Christ that has been bequeathed to you by his last will and testament called the New Testament that is now being administrated by the executor, the Holy Spirit, inasmuch as the testator has passed from the earthly to the heavenlies and now what was in his estate may be properly conveyed to the beneficial heirs. If I could identify the central good of his estate meant to be given to you. And since we're talking about the covenant and administrators, we're defining what constitutes the estate of the Lord Jesus Christ to be distributed by the order of royal priests. I didn't comment on the priesthood aspect of it, except to say just this, that unlike the order of Levi where the priest, where the function of the priest was to offer a sacrifice, the order of Melchizedek is the one in which the priests have been qualified to function by becoming the sacrifices themselves. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, Romans 12.1, that you present your bodies living sacrifices. To what end? Wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What is the process that qualifies you? And be not conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, then you'll be able to test and approve. That's applying the measure and standard. It's functioning as a judge. Functioning as a judge. What is the good, the pleasing, and the perfect will of God? That's a graduating process. Good is good, <laughs> pleasing is better, but perfect is the standard. So he'll change you. And that's the order of the priesthood. You present your bodies as a living sacrifice for the choreography of being made perfect. In your ability to understand the standard and especially in your ability to accurately, without bias or corruption, present the standard. There's no question that the intent of God in this hour is to bring forth the central asset of the estate of Christ, to bring it forth individually and to bring it forth corporately. That central asset is the right to represent the Father in creation as Christ modeled that representation to us. The, the work of Christ to be finished, there were things that were uniquely His to complete and He did. On the cross He declared that that portion was finished. But it was also said of Paul, that he came and in the, in the matter of sufferings, 
He was meant to fill up the measure of what was lacking according to the standard of Christ. So Paul is the perfect showing of the sufferings of Christ. But there are other things left. That's why he gave us glory, clothed us with his glory. His mission in the earth included saving us, but the overarching purpose was God's original intent, which is to be revealed as he is in his attributes and character. Therefore, not surprisingly, the ministry of Christ was to reveal the Father. That work remains unfinished. He intended it to be so that we would be clothed with Christ for the purpose of both individually and corporately revealing the nature of the Father. That will be our mandate as the age comes to a close. Everything will be resolved and summed up in Christ. I read that. That's still being unpacked in my spirit. Everything will be summed up, not in Jesus. The man, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, finished what was his to do. But the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of the perfect Son who is qualified and competent to display in its fullness all of the central attributes of the nature of God who is spirit, so that the invisible may become visible in the things that can be seen about him. His personhood is not to be understood in terms of his visible self. His personhood is to be understood in terms of the characteristics of his nature. The invisible will always be invisible. But what may be visible, what may become visible about him is what he has committed to us to represent. That's why we were included in Christ and that's why we were given the task of finishing this representation. That's why the process is designed to result in us being like Christ so that the glory may be born naturally, natively upon a a body that has been raised up in the image and likeness of the Son, which was God's statement governing his purpose for creating man. Let us make man in our image after our own likeness. He was not speaking of Adam, indeed he couldn't be speaking of Adam because while he was saying these things, let us make man in our image and likeness, he is still the God who sees the end from the beginning. He couldn't blind himself to what the end would be while he was speaking at the beginning. It is impossible for him not to know the end from the beginning because he ordains both the beginning and the end. I don't have time to talk about time.
<laughs> As God described time in the creation. You notice how things are evening and morning. That's because, and, and by the way, evening and morning before the fourth day. What's the significance of that? It's the fourth day that he creates the sun. So a concept of a day designed around a 24-hour cycle of the sun does not come into play until the fourth day of creation. So what does he mean when he says, and the evening and the morning were the first day, and the evening and the morning were the second day, and the evening and the morning were the third day? You note the structure of evening and morning. Why? Because he's describing a day differently. For God, a day is when the thing comes out of darkness, evening, into light, morning. These are figures of speech. Epochs in God are not measured by the quantities or quantification of time as we know time. That's clear from the narrative. If you try to insist that that's the framework, you have an insurmountable problem because the standard of measurement doesn't come into being quite yet and yet you have morning and evening. So God is speaking of a thing coming out of obscurity, coming into visibility. When God says, let there be light, He's not talking about the sun, the moon and the stars because He doesn't create them till the fourth day. What light does He refer to? If you look closely at the, at the Hebrew, it's a reference to things coming out of obscurity. It says, and darkness was on the surface of the deep. It doesn't say darkness was in the deep. Like a tablecloth on a table, it obscures the, 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 the finish and the surface of the table. His intent was to remove the darkness. Creation in its whole was God's design to remove the obscurity and darkness regarding His nature and bringing it into revealed perspective. All of creation is like that. So when it's done, when it's done, what will creation's purpose have served? The revealing of the nature of God. And of all creation, man was uniquely configured to carry the image and likeness of God. He was looking at the end from the beginning and he wasn't seeing Adam. He was seeing the many-membered Christ. When it's all finished, creation will yield the likeness of the Father in the form of the corporate Christ. That's the greatest estate imaginable that could be conveyed to the creation. That's why we were created in the distinctiveness of spirit clothed in flesh, spirit out of the person of God with the ability to relate perfectly to God so that the transfer of His nature would be possible and in the end the perfection of that transfer would look like God reflected in the earth in a, co in a single man, in a corporate man. That's what I understand about the order of Melchizedek.